Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 71. Today's guest is Kodiak Fields. Kodiak Fields is a two-time IBJJF world champion in both gi and no gi. Today, Kodiak and I discuss how being bullied as a child led him to the martial arts. We talk about competition, is competitiveness learned or innate, and what it's like recovering from major surgery with the goal of competing again on the world stage. I was so fortunate to get Kodiak Fields on the show. Met him a few years back. He is an unbelievable jiu-jitsu competitor. So tough, so technical, great guy, amazing storyteller, and I hope you enjoy. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the follow button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Kodiak Fields. And remember, life is built, not born. Kodiak Fields, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Joe. Always a pleasure. It's an honor to have you on the show. Kodiak, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? So I am first a a husband and a father of five beautiful children. And I am a multiple world champion in in jiu-jitsu, as well as Pan American, Fight to Win, couple other titles. And then uh, in my my professional career, I am a director of sales for NFI industry. I want to get into your MMA career, how you got into it, where that competitive drive comes from. Because you look such a competitive person. Is that taught? Is that Nate? I want to get into that. The mindset you bring in not only to the ring, and on the jujitsu map, but to your business and your life, how they transfer over and how they build off of each other. I also wouldn't mind touching base on you went through, you had a pretty big surgery. Looking at you, you'd have no idea you did, but you had a pretty big surgery. What it's like coming back from that? That's good with you? Sure. It sounds good. Cool. I want to start off all the way from the beginning. Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Granville, Ohio, which is a small college town that surrounds Denison University. So small to give you a, a, an indication, my, my graduating class had 88 people in it. So very, very small community. Growing up in a small community like that, can you remember what's the most like powerful memory or vivid memory of your childhood in that small community? Well, I think it's more on the lines of how the community circles around its athletes. I came up playing soccer And then when I came of high school age, it turned into football because football was a more popular sport. What's really cool about that is the camaraderie that that you feel around athletics. And I think that's what drew me to athletics from the very beginning was team sports created this camaraderie amongst the athletes and the coaches, which is something that I really didn't get to experience a lot growing up because I was an only child in my primary household until my father was remarried and had my sister. I just wasn't really part of that big family. The community itself, you know, having anywhere you go, everybody knows your name, but there's a double-edged sword of that. If you start any trouble, anywhere you go, everybody knows your name. Yeah. (laughs) So I I think it's that that small town feel that that overall just unity that that you find when when you have um, a community that circles around to support athletic events at at the high school level. And that, that's that, the Friday night lights. I, there's, there's nothing that my first experience under the lights was just absolutely amazing. And, I, and I'll never forget that. It was just so cool. You know, being back for the, the first kickoff of the season as a freshman and having a senior who was on the other side, you know, come and grab my face. And I goes, you ready for this? It's time. Let's go. And the roar of the crowd and catching the fall, the ball for the first time. That was an amazing experience. It's like, okay, this is, this is what it's all about. Rumor had doing some research. Rumor has it you are a kick returner, pretty good kick returner, right? Were you, yeah, were you I was pretty quick at my fastest. I ran a four three forty. Really? Uh, 
Yeah, I, I also went to state and in track, so I was a hurdler, and then I was on our four by four by four team. So looking at you, I would think you're a middle linebacker, you know, just crushing people coming over the middle. So fast forwarding a little bit, so you have that competitive drive, and it showed itself through in your high school years through football. Where did you first find martial arts? What was your first? Oh, well, now we have to rewind. Martial arts I didn't find until I was, uh, gosh, I, I think it was maybe 11 or 12 and I was being bullied. Uh, I was being bullied. I was a smaller kid and I wasn't real social. <laughs> and w- w- one of the other more assertive kids was was beating me up. He would, uh, he'd hit me with, uh, so I was in Little League and, yeah. and he was a pitcher. Every time I come up to bat, he'd hit me with the ball. So I end up quitting baseball because of it. I'm like, this, this is horrible. Uh, <laughs> my parents allowed me to quit. That was the first time they actually allowed me to quit. And they then they've come to find out that, you know, I was getting my butt kicked. You know, they would drop me off at the pool. I would have my swim lessons and my swim team. We had, I was a competitive swimmer. And then I would stay at the pool all day, right? That was my summer. And uh, this guy, Corey Hartman, would just beat the shit out of me. I mean, it was horrible. It breaks off me on a daily basis. And I would come home with ripped shirt and bloody nose and black eyes. And my parents said, you're not going to be a, a victim. And they put me in Taekwondo. And that's where it started. Okay. So after Taekwondo, I finally had that confrontation with Corey, who's now a very good friend of mine. Um, and that, that ended it. Right. So that was, that was the end of the bullet. And he came at me and this time I was ready. I was ready for it. And, you know, when I unloaded, I was so emotional at what was taking place. I was able to actually fend him off and defend myself that I'm, I was actually crying in the moments of key hopping. And then afterwards, you know, he's crying, I'm crying and we're young kids, right? We're not, we're not warriors. We're just Kids trying to figure it out, figure out what the pecking order was. And at that point, he was at the higher pecking order as a bully. And that kind of leveled the playing field. And after that, I was known as, hey, this this kid, this scrawny kid can take care of himself. Probably not the best guy to pick a fight with. But that kind of, you know, sticking up for those who are being bullied has always been something that that has been ingrained in me. Even Mm -hmm. as a freshman in high school, if we go back to football, where there was a gentleman, Tim, who was a, a grade above us, a big old farm boy, and was picking on a kid in my class who I wasn't friends with him, but I didn't really even like the kid. But what he was doing was wrong. What Tim was doing to my classmate was wrong. And so I stuck up and I'm like, hey, man, chill out. Just leave him alone. And then he grabbed my helmet and said, oh, you want a piece of this field? And as he's doing that, I slipped out of my helmet. Right now he can't shake me around. Doesn't have my head. And the team started laughing at him. And he's like, okay, that's it after practice. And it was the, our Thursday walkthrough. We did Thursday walkthrough before Friday night games. And so after practice, we go over to the field, the coaches are cleared out and everybody's surrounding us. And big old farm boy, Tim comes at scrawny little fields and starts throwing haymakers. And because of training, I, I knew how to duck a punch. I know how to return strikes. And that's exactly what I did. I lit him up like a Christmas tree. And after a second time that his butt hit the ground, he quit. And that was the end of it. Wow. And that kind of just cemented myself as, listen, I'm, I may be smaller than everyone. I may not be as vocal, but it's, I'm not the victim. And nor will I, will I allow anyone else in my circle to, to be bullied. So I still stand by that. I, I cannot, I cannot witness bullying. I can't stand it. And just, it is deeply ingrained in me that I will stick up for the, the people who are not able to stick up for themselves. Oh, that's great. Where do you think that bullying comes from? Like from that opposite end, Corey, who you said you're friends with now, did he ever mention like why he always wanted to kick your butt? Like that when you were younger, is there some vibe you're giving off? Did you do something? Like, like I always wonder, like, where does that come from? Like, sometimes you see, like, I have no idea why X is picking on Y. What's your perspective? I think it has a lot to do with kids just trying to figure it out. Kids trying to exert dominance over each other. If you take a look at uh, like a pack of wolves, for example, uh, wolves will have their confrontations from within the pack to establish who is going to be the leader. Mm-hmm. So 
if we take it back to our animalistic instincts, I think that has something to do with it is that, you know, everyone's vying for that, that top spot. The other aspect of it is, is that, you know, when, when somebody is different, when they don't conform to the group, times they, you want to challenge that, right? It's a target for uh, not just physical bullying, but for emotional and verbal bullying. And we still see that today, but I think it really comes back to parenting. My kids have never been bullied because they've been in martial arts and they carry themselves with a bit of confidence. Children seem to want to build their confidence out of dominating others and subjugating their peers. On the flip side of that, when somebody is truly confident, they don't feel that need. Prime example, a trained martial artist if they're challenged in a public setting, they're not going to fight. They're a prize fighter. They know better. And they know that they can dismantle that person. They don't need to prove it to them that they can do so because they already know it can happen. So they kind of just brush it off and like, or they'll just de-escalate it through verbal jujitsu, right? And hopefully make a friend afterwards. But it's that confidence aspect. So a lot of people who are victimized. It's because they're not, typically they're not carrying themselves with the amount of confidence or they're not attentive to their surroundings. If they're not understanding what's happening around them or they're choosing to ignore it, that can sometimes instigate the bullying behavior as well. Whether it be an assault, whether it be bullying, it's it's really, I, I think it's the confidence aspect, building confidence, and then ultimately just being aware of what's happening around you and not ignoring it. Yeah. Not ignoring it is a big deal. When good people do nothing, that's how crazy stuff happens, right? That's a parallel point. Joe, what I'm referring to is prime example of what we teach in women in self-defense, right? So a a woman is walking alone and she's fumbling for her keys, right? And maybe somebody is starting to pursue her, starting to stalk her. She sees that he's there, right? She hears, she knows, but instead of turning, making eye contact, and addressing that individual, they get sheepish. Mm-hmm. And so what that does is just encourage the attack. Okay. So women's empowerment classes, that w- which is you know the foundation of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, we teach that. We teach that when you're in those type of situations, address that person, de-escalate it before it even starts with verbal. Not mm-hmm. uh, We're not saying go start a fight. We're just saying, hey, whoa, what's up? Do I know you? Can I help you? Right. Not be fumbling around thinking that it'll just go away. Fast forward a little bit. Or what was your first taste of jujitsu? When did you realize? <laughs> yeah. Everyone has that like level of ignorance. Like you, you think you know something and then you're like, oh, I took take one. I, I took stand up martial arts for like 12 years. And then I run right. into Steve Maxwell in Philadelphia. And oh, he's he, awesome. He puts me in a headlock. He goes, get out of this. And if he didn't let go, I'd still be there 20 years later. Then he goes, do it to me. And then he, boom, did the move. And he's like, that's jujitsu. I'm like, sign me up. What was your first exposure to it? So I was a national and state Taekwondo champion in multiple categories. Arguably, I could fight. I had wrestling under my belt, right? My father was a boxer and a state champion wrestling. So for all intents and purposes, I knew how to fight. Nope. <laughs> I went into I went into jujitsu, and the the instructor Robin Giesler of Gracie, Ohio, in Westerville, Ohio. He he put me with. I was only allowed to do the line drill sparring with two people. One was about a hundred and thirty pound purple belt. The other was about a hundred and fifty pound blue belt. That's it. And I'm looking at these guys saying, I. I'm going to eat these guys alive. The harder I came at them, the worse they submitted me. They they choked me so many times. They armbarred me. They just destroyed me. And I would jump up. I'd thank them. I'd run to the back of the line and I'd wait my turn. And when I get to the front of the line, I have to wait for one of those two to come open. A CMS, I got only two guys. And then I'd run back in there and I, boom, I'm going to get them this time. Nope, they make it worse. (laughs) 
And it was the understanding that even though I, I thought I knew how to fight, right, in the most civilian definitions, I could fight. However, when it came to the technical aspects of jujitsu, I could not stop them from doing whatever they wanted to. And it was through that realization that I came to just be absolutely obsessed about understanding this martial art. And from that day forward, I've been on the mat almost every day since. Even if a, a guy never took a martial art in his life, guy or girl, everyone thinks they're a better fighter than they really are. Like everyone's like, oh, I can fight. Default, people are horrendous. Like they're absolutely yeah. horrendous fighters, right? With no training. Yeah. Like everyone thinks, oh, I can scrap. I'm top. Like they're horrendous. Like your, your innate fighting ability is not that great for the average person. Fair enough. Agreed. You yeah. see the fighting and you see the, you see all this going on. Like it's, it's just bad. But then like you took Taekwondo, you take karate, you take something. And then you walk into a jujitsu school for the first. Once I realized like I couldn't walk around with that level of ignorance, I didn't know how ignorant I was of what could happen and what could be done to me. And I couldn't walk around with that level of ignorance. So I agree with that aspect of it. For, for me, it was like, there is another level of martial arts that I had no idea existed. Yeah. Okay. And, and part of my bucket list was to get in the cage. Okay. And following the UFC, I knew that I had to have some level of ground game other than ground and pound. Mm-hmm. And jujitsu was that next phase. So, uh, I mean, it was just so humbling. And the more that I did it, the more I fell in love with it. it mm-hmm. The reason I love jujitsu more than anything else I've ever trained is there's no coulda, shoulda, woulda. Mm-hmm. It happened or it didn't. Yeah. You tapped or you didn't, right? There, there's not a lot of room for interpretation. Yeah. In Taekwondo, I, often my instructors would say, oh, well, I would have finished the fight with that strike. But you didn't, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I had to pull it back because of safety and control. And to me, that's just a bunch of watered-down BS, which is the direction that most martial arts academies are going because they see more member revenue than they do in actually educating their student body mm-hmm. in practical application martial arts. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier that you were a swimmer. You went to the swim club. You're on the swim team. And the one, my kids swim, and, I've another, and a few of us take jiu-jitsu in the house. But the one, the one connection that they both have is like in swimming, your time's your time. It's, you know, your 50 free time. Like there's no like, yeah. oh, I still think you're better than him. Like, no, like what's your time? What is, what's her time? She's better. And then jujitsu, yeah. the mat tells no lies. Like we That's roll, right. you tap me in 12 seconds, you win, I lose. You know what I mean? It's like, there's no like, well, he should have won. Like, no. Slap and bump and let's do it again. Yeah, slap and bump, let's do it again. Like, there's no like, well, I think what might have happened. It's like, it's very binary, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. like it happened or it didn't happen, correct? And that's so, it. Yeah, that, that's the great thing with that, with jujitsu and swimming. It's just like, it's very like, you know exactly where you stand and there's no lies being told and very little interpretation, right? I love it because it's also a crusher of egos mm-hmm. and- of humility, which I think that as humans, we need to get wrapped up in our own minds and our own impressions of who we are and who we should be. So when I think everyone should train jujitsu just so they can have that overall experience, unfortunately, there are some that their egos just can't handle it. They can't gut check. They can't handle the reality that they don't know what they don't know. Right. And, And me, I run straight into that. I If there's something that I don't, I want to know about. I want to know about it. And if it's a blind spot for me, I definitely want to investigate it even further. Yeah. Well, and with jujitsu and ego, with, like you mentioned a few moments ago, where like the really trained fighters, like the pro, even that pro fighter, someone who's trained jujitsu for 10 years, very uncommon. They get in a fight. If anything, they deescalate it verbally. They walk away. They look like the weak one. Like, I'm not going to fight this person. Jujitsu does a great job of introducing who you are to yourself. Like you don't have to prove it to yourself or your friends. Like, you know what you can do when you're on the mat and say you you do 10, 15 rounds a week. Right. Uh, You know exactly where you are. You know, like, you know, I kind of suck at this. I'm okay at that. I'm not bad doing this. Like you have an idea. And then, so if someone says, Hey, you're a bleep, you're going to laugh and walk away. You don't have to prove, you know exactly what you are. Right. I mean, exactly. And I think that's the biggest part when you, when you have, 
competitive martial artists is that it's very rare that we feel that we have to approve ourselves mm-hmm. outside of a competition setting. Mm-hmm. We, when that happens, the, I think I go back to it, it, anyone's opinion of me is none of my business. Mm-hmm. That's, that's their opinion. If, if somebody has a problem with me, pick up the phone and call me. If you don't have my number, that should really tell you the level of our relationship. So I just look at it like that because I live by that. If I have a problem with you, Joe, I'm going to pick up the phone and be like, Joe, listen, you offended me. Here's what took place. And I want to have a conversation to clear the air and resolve the grievance. I'm not going to get on social media and post about it. I'm not going to cry to my friends about it. I'm going to come to you, Joe, and have a conversation because I think that's how adults should interact with each other. But when it comes to civilians starting to have a couple Sometimes they like to take a look at the the bigger guys in the room, uh, you know, sometimes the ones with cauliflower ear and see how far they can push it, you, you know, we, but we even had a circumstance recently in our community where two jujitsu athletes got involved in a confrontation and one of them was killed. So it, we're not impervious mm-hmm. to these tragedies. Mm-hmm. It's all about ego at a club. And I'm talking about Lerando L- Lowe. Yeah, horrible. It, so, so he is a legend in our sport, you know, and he his life was abruptly ended over someone who had lesser jujitsu wanted to challenge him, and when he lost, this lesser man resorted to pulling a gun and shooting him. So he started the confrontation, and rightfully so, got his butt kicked for it. And then decided that his response was murder. So we're we're not perfect. We're all human, but you just don't see that type of stuff happen often in our community. And that was a, it was an absolute tragedy. Yeah, that guy's a legend. Well, um, but getting back to the competitiveness, I think when we first yeah. ran into each other, you were maybe a purple belt. You came through Balance Studios in Philly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you came to a class, Ricardo Migliori's class. I never met you. I think you were, you were with your wife, Kelly, was there. And uh, Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and you were uh, you were rolling, and I'm like, damn, this guy's good. And I'm like, and I, oh. and I, I felt better when knowing you were you were on a competitive tear. Like you, you were just a face in the room. And I'm like, you caught my eye. I'm like, wow, this guy is really good. And But then you were nationally competitive at the time, right? So there was, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember watching you and Ricardo. I think you might have ran into the Prevolone necktie or something. Tell that story. Yeah. So um, uh, Ricardo, the animal, uh, and uh, it was was um, you know watching me uh, tear up the mat a little bit, and and then um, you know called me over for uh, for a role, and and I'm excited, right? Because I'm getting to roll with black belt, and at that point there weren't a lot of black belts and he was, uh, he was highly regarded as a competitor, uh, a health and Gracie black belt, which is through my lineage as well. A good friend of my instructor, Robin Giesler. So to, to say that I was honored and humbled that he would select me to roll in class, it would be an understatement. And he let me work a little bit and he let me work and he let me build my confidence. And then he sprung the trap. <laughs> Like, like all black belts do, they let you think that you're about to do something. And he ended up hitting, to, to the rest of the community, the move is called the Peruvian necktie. And, and when he hit it on me, I tapped, of course, and I came out of it and I said, uh, Professor, was, was that the Peruvian? He goes, no, 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 no. That's the provolone necktie because it was done by an Italian. <laughs> provolone, the provolone necktie, that's, that's, that's awesome. That's a, oh, legit, yeah. that's a legit moving balance. Yeah, that's awesome. Now I appreciate it. Thanks for sharing that. Um, how about, so take us to, where do you think, get back to the competitiveness. To me, competitiveness is almost like leadership. Is it taught? Is it learned? Where does it, is it innate? Where does it come from? Like, is it, can you teach a non-competitive person to be competitive? Or is that something just the way you're wired? What's your perspective on that? I think you can absolutely teach somebody who isn't competitive to be competitive as long as you understand what their purpose is. If you align someone's purpose with the goal, then anyone can be competitive. And then it's about setting proper KPIs. Yeah. So performance indicators, right? So 
if we're taking a look at it from an athletic standpoint, if I'm trying to build a jiu-jitsu competitor, first there has to be a desire to want to compete, right? Maybe they come to competition, they see others do it. They're just a little intimidated by it because it can be extremely intimidating. There has to be at least a preliminary desire. Then once there's that desire, then we can start to build a roadmap for them to get into competition. And it starts with how you practice, starts with how you train. It starts with setting mile markers within the practice room, right? So that you're starting to slowly build that confidence. And with athletes, it's, it's, you just have to be strategic in, in how you build them. Prime example, if I'm, if I have a, a new white belt, I'm not going to have him go try the move of the day on the blue and purples, right? Yep. I'm going to have him try the move of the day on those who are a little bit smaller than, than him on the mat. Mm-hmm. So the same goes with them as they're starting to get ready for competition, right? As they're starting to get ready for competition, I want the athlete to focus on those where they're able to win those roles so that they build their confidence level up for the comp. Now, I'm not going to take that athlete and throw them right into Pan Ams. My preference would be to build them up with smaller local tournaments. They can get a feel for what the entire process is about, understand the timing, understand the rule set, the adrenaline dump, right? A lot of athletes will get on the mat for the first time and just dump. And so they'll gas out within the first couple of minutes, understanding how to mitigate that, because that's a real problem for athletes, even at my level. Sometimes We'll just get too amped up and, and we'll have an adrenaline dump. So that's a long answer for saying it absolutely can be taught, just like I believe that you can teach someone to be competitive in a professional environment. Some quick highlights of your jiu-jitsu career. Eight-time world master silver medalist, six-time masters Pan Am champion, two-time world masters champion brown and purple, two-time world masters champion IBJJF, Two times no gi world champion masters eight in, in 2018, 2019. Crazy. What made you first off get into it? And then when did you say, you know what? Not only do I want to do the local Naga, I want to go on the world stage. I want to go in the Pan Ams. I want to go in the worlds. Where, where, where is that coming from? So I was competing in Taekwondo and I was getting warned for excessive contact during barring. Okay. Kelly had suggested that it's time for me to start taking another look at jujitsu because we watched a lot of MMA together. And I came into jujitsu and after my first month of training, I did my first competition, both gi and no gi. And I won both, which was amazing. But looking back at the film, I, I mean, it's just a whole lot of scrambling where I would end up in positions that were scoring. I didn't know what the points were. I didn't know what the rule set was. All I knew is that I'm just, I'm going to get on top and stay on top. And I mean, it was not a whole lot of jujitsu was going on. It was pretty sloppy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then a camaraderie was immediately built with the team. And there were a few of us that really enjoyed competition. And so almost every time there was a local competition within a five hour drive, we'd be on the road. Mm-hmm. And we were doing that all the time. So we were driving all over the Midwest, going to jiu-jitsu tournaments, doing both gi and no gi. And then, and then I did Pan Ams and I got my first taste for a major tournament. And that was amazing. Mm-hmm. So as a white, I fought a guy uh, that looked like Lurch. He seriously was taller than me on the second place podium. He's on second. I'm at the top. He's still taller than me. So that's like over a foot. This guy's towered over me. That was huge. Man. So when you get on the mat with someone like that, so what goes through your mind? You know, someone who just out, totally outsizes you. So you, what do you think? You thinking just stay out of his closed guard. Yeah. Just stay out of the guard, right? Stay out of the guard. And- I mean, seriously, I mean, I'm so, but I made a mistake. I hit a double on him and I went right into his double guard or right into his closed guard, right? But I was like, to start. I ended up passing and mounting him to finish the match well ahead. But, you know, taller guys, I, I've got a game plan for them. And, and for the most part, it's I, I try not to start in their best position, which is typically a closed guard scenario. Fighting the grip at the hands is, is always really important because you don't want them to have that, that over grip 
back, especially in the gi or collar ties. So I think grip fighting uh, opponents who are longer and, and or taller than you is, is really vital. Mm-hmm. Totally makes sense. One thing I love about jujitsu, it just, it's so basic, like grips, win the grip battle, right? Don't go into no. the strongest position. It's a lot of like just staying out of really bad positions and win the grip battle, like past the legs, good side pressure. Like it's just a bunch of basic techniques, basic ideas strung together that look very complex, but it's very simple, correct? It is. It's very simple. Like the concepts that I apply now have just been sharpened over, you know, the, the past uh, almost, what, 14 years? Yeah. It's the sharpening of our fundamentals. Okay. Uh, and we drill it, we teach it, and it's it's through the ongoing practice, which makes us experts at it. Today in the jiu-jitsu world, there's competitive schools, there's self-defense-based mm-hmm. schools, and then there's some schools that kind of do both pretty well. How does someone make sure who's training that's all in the tournaments keep the self-defense aspect of jiu-jitsu for self-defense, like, and be able to defend yourself, not just be good at tournaments? So, you know, I've heard this debate a lot, right? And, and, and I came from a Gracie background. So, you know, I, I trained under Robin until I was a purple belt. And it just came to the point where the techniques that I was getting beat with in competition were completely foreign to my school. And so I started to reach for knowledge outside of our traditional Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. So Helson says that if it isn't, if it isn't made for the street, it isn't Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. So by that notion, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu is specifically for self-defense. It's not a competitive martial art. The Carlson Gracie system is about fighting. It's about not, not being a defensive person, but being an aggressive and pressure and passing and, and, and moves that are painful, right? It's a fight. So, you know, the two brothers had their own philosophies on how they wanted to apply Jiu-Jitsu. And so that's why you have a separation within in the community. I would challenge you to find any purple belt that is competing in jiu-jitsu who couldn't defend himself. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it, 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 and the fact of the matter is, is that they're they're going to have the concepts necessary to defuse an attack against a civilian, right? So now I, I'm sure there's exceptions to that throughout the community, but overall, if you train jujitsu, you're doing 99% better than the majority of our society because there's such a small percentage of us that are actually training this martial art or training in martial arts mm-hmm. overall. I don't think that, that you can go wrong. If you find your way to the mat because of self-defense, confidence, fitness, camaraderie, and, and just overall physical health, bravo. If you never compete, no problem. You're still on the mat. You're still getting the benefits, which are just absolutely limitless. On the other side of it, if you're coming for competition, good. That's great. Let's go that route too. It doesn't matter what the motive is that gets you on the mat and keeps you on the mat as long as you're on it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. How about now with how competitive you are in all the matches you had? So injuries, when does, how does that come into play? And tell us about what you went through with your surgery and your rehab, if you wouldn't mind sharing that story. So when I played football, I had a, an injury that we believe is what caused my back injury. So I have a, I had a double parse fracture in five herniated discs in, in spawning. And basically what that means is that my spine wasn't stable and it was impinging on my nerve, which would cause my right leg to go completely numb. And then that time period, it used to be like a half hour of standing on a hard surface. And then over six years, it became a matter of minutes. Not only would my leg go numb, but then my, my leg would start to cramp and then my lower back would start to cramp and the rest of my back would cramp. So it was, it was pretty painful but I did never really felt it when I was on the mat until the very last week before I determined it was time to have surgery. What we think caused it was when I, I had a hit in football where my entire body felt like it got electrocuted. I had a pretty big, big impact and it literally felt like my, my body got electrocuted. Like I've had stingers before where half of my body would go numb and, and, um, and we celebrated that stuff. We didn't know any better. We were stupid. And, but that one occurrence where that I felt that like bolt of lightning through my body 
that that's pretty telltale sign that I that I did some significant damage there. Um, so I fought with that, and when when I had the final diagnosis, they uh, they told me that I would never return to jujitsu. That was the end of it, and that was my first year at black belt. So that was uh, 2016. So at 2016, um, I had not won a major yet as a black belt. I was just cutting my teeth. I've been on the podium a couple of times, but not at the top. And I rejected their notion of having surgery because it would end jujitsu for me, or, or so they said. And so the next six years, I went out and I did as much as I could do, as often as I could do it. And so that's, you know, back there, mm-hmm. <laughs> the other way. It's a lot of metals and belts. Yeah. <laughs> and there. Um, but that's where those all came from, right? That behind me is just my black belt accolades, right? So that's just from black belt. A couple world championships back there, a couple Pan Am championships, two fight to win championships, Euros. I mean, I went after it. And, um, you know, I sent a list. The list was everything back there minus regular Euros. I did Nogi Euros. The pandemic shut down Euros in Portugal, so I wasn't able to compete in that one. So that in Brazilian, the Brazilian nationals are the only two that I wasn't able to compete at, again, because of what happened with COVID. But when I started to cross all those things off the list and then put a check mark, meaning that that's the second time I achieved it, it was time for me to understand that, hey, you know, I'm living in too much pain. My quality of life has deteriorated. I can't go walk on the beach without being in extreme pain. Uh, it, it And I was on the mat training for the next tournament. And I was in so much pain. I just, I dropped to my knee and I just started crying. And I started, talked to Cyborg about it. And, and we just, uh, we both thought, uh, you know, through an embrace, we're like, okay, it's time. It's time to get this fixed. And so I went. And I went and found a, a surgeon who had operated on a training partner of mine at Magnus. Um, uh, his name's Nick Bobaloo. And Nick had the exact same surgery. And within six months, he was already back on the mat rolling. And so I, I sat with Nick and, and really understood everything that he went through. And, and I trained with him a couple of times and, you know, we became friends and, and I, you know, it's, through his experience and success gave me the confidence to say, Hey, jujitsu may be a little bit different for me when I come back from surgery, but it's still going to happen. So I went in last October and I had a T lift by level fusion from my L4, L5 to S1. They did uh, those beautiful titanium plates to make my spine look like it should right with that natural bend. I woke up from surgery, pain was gone. Wow. I'm through the hospital, no pain, no numbness, just like instantaneous. It was amazing. Wow. Um, and so started it started my recovery. And the only thing I was allowed to do, Joe, was walk. That's it. So what I did, went out to the beach path out here, and I would walk and I would walk. But at first it started with walking my hallway. I'm gonna walk down my hallway. And that's as far as I go for the first couple of days. And then I could walk out to the pool and then come back. And then I got up to walking a mile and a half and then back. And then I'm like, okay, well, if I can do a mile and a half, let's do three. And so then I started, my back started to cramp up and I'm like, doc, what's going on? He's like, you're doing too much. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, well, I need a protocol here because for me, if you tell me the only thing I can do is walk and walk to tolerance, I'm going to keep walking. And I don't know what tolerance is because I felt pain. I felt numbness. I've been uncomfortable. I don't feel those things. Maybe a little fatigue. So I had to come to terms with what that meant, right? And I had to redefine what my physical boundaries are, my physical limitations, so that I didn't do so much one day that I couldn't then do PT the next. I also employed a good friend of mine, Dr. Hero, who is the cornerstone of my physical therapy. And I would see him multiple times a week where we would focus on re-strengthening my body. Uh, He's also a Muay Thai guy. So uh, we started getting into Muay Thai and I'm starting to hit pads again and start feeling comfortable with my rotation of my spine and impact and we just started, we started to build the foundation slow 
And that's exactly what it is. It's a foundation and just block by block by block, we build it back up where I've officially returned to the map. Now, if we're going to gauge myself of where I was now compared to where I was when I was winning Worlds, I would say I'm about 55% of my abilities. It's just, I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to have this surgery and that I had the support system and the professionals and the love of my wife to help me get through a very challenging time because it's challenging. When you go through this surgery, you are severely limited and it does take a village to to bring you back to to full health. So I I couldn't be happier. Congratulations on that. What did it feel like when you woke up and you're waiting to feel the pain and the pain's not there? What went through your mind there? I was ecstatic. That's got to be the best gift ever. Yeah, I was absolutely ecstatic. And the the nurses at the station were like, we've never seen anybody jump out of bed the first day of surgery and start running up and down the halls. <laughs> I'm like, wow, this is great. So when you go on the, you're on the mat now, like how has your game changed? Like, is it just there's certain explosive moves you don't try? What's it like now? I, I can just think now on a slow version of that, like I just hit 50. So like my gym is way different than it was when I was 30, right? Like just way right. different. You can see, wow, if I really exploded up and did the uh, underhook, I could take the back. I'm not going to do that. I can feel the injuries almost before they happen now. I'm like, oh, if I try this yeah. move, I'm going to tweak my back. I'll just stay where I am. Sure. Where do you see like now, like what, what you are in your career? It's the exact same, Joe. There, there, there are plenty of areas where the big one for me is takedowns. I am very cautious of being taken down. Mm-hmm. And when, um, you know, I, I roll with our bigger athletes plenty of times where they'll get in positions where they can dump me. Uh, I mean, they can slam me, they can put me down pretty hard and I'll tap. We'll get in that position where I know I'm vulnerable and I'll tap and it's okay because it's not worth setting myself back. And that's the beautiful thing about where my ego is on the map. There's no ego on the map. These are my friends. Yep. We're training. And so there are many areas where we're okay. Another one, if my back starts to get extended, I, I'll tap. Like it's, it, I know, I, I know my body enough to understand where my limitations currently are. And part of it is just fear. But quite honestly, I'd rather be fearful than be off the mat a week or two or, or a half. month. Yeah. Well, they can pop a screw out through a, yeah. a getting suplexed or some stupid stuff like that Joe. just not worth it, it. Worth it to me no so it's, two, <laughs> so it's two things one it's internal it's ego you got to manage your ego you got to get to yeah. a spot where maybe they're doing something like as simple as a body fold takedown they got you you got exactly. to tap right there because you don't want to get slammed right yeah. but then you need good training partners that you trust how important is trust with your training partners it's everything 100 everything right i will not i don't train with anybody that i don't trust mm-hmm. so and the beautiful thing about that is when I first came back to the mat, I started to, to get into it. I'm like, hey, guys, I may tap in situations where you don't think that I'm in jeopardy. It's That's not about it. If I'm in an uncomfortable position, I do need you to remove all pressure immediately. And all of my training partners have been extremely cautious with me. And, you know, some of them are getting ready to compete in the ADCC. Mm-hmm. And still, they choose to do rounds with me because we enjoy rolling together. Right. But, you know, we we're focusing on more technical aspects of the game, slowing things down. We're going deeper down the rabbit hole of our technique. So it becomes more of a thinking man's game for me rather than pohada. Right. So, yeah. and, and for anyone who isn't uh, training jujitsu, pohada means a hard fight. It's like a very tough training round. It is pohada is, identical to a competition round. Yeah, just going at it, full full throttle. I mean, just going, yep. Full throttle. Yep. To be uh, First of all, thank you for sharing that. Be respectful of your time. I want to shift gears to a little part of the interview we call Share Your Secrets so our listeners can get to know you a little bit more as a person. Um, Sure. How about most high achievers like yourself have a routine, either start their day or to end their day. They have some Mm -hmm. sort of routine to (laughs) ramp up or slow down. What's your routine look like? What do you do? So 5 a.m., alarm goes off. We uh, we feed the dogs. 
we we make a, a double colada, which is basically a double espresso, not sugar in mine. I do Splenda. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Let's yeah. go. Let's go. That's awesome. So we have an espresso machine. I absolutely love it. And then our gym bags are already packed. So Kelly and I head off to the gym. We're in the gym by 0600. That's our Monday through Friday routine. And it's we're doing that at least four to five days a week, every week. Awesome. How about with all you got going on with your businesses, with your rehab, your training, when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? Jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu. So you do jiu-jitsu, it's still jiu-jitsu. If I need to clear my mind, it's jiu-jitsu. If I need to heal my body, it is cold tub therapy. It's snaps. It's hot tub. Um, so a, a big part of our routine in the evenings is hot tub and debriefing where, uh, Kelly and I will just, well, our phones are off. We are completely unplugged. We're hanging out at the pool in the hot tub, doing the compress back and forth. Uh, and then over the weekend, it is, our, we, our beach is pretty secluded. So when we, we have our chairs set up, we're set up away from the main part of the group. So we'll basically, we'll go out there and we'll spend our mornings out on the beach, listening to the ocean and just reconnecting and relaxing and recharging. So um, beach naps are a huge part of recovery. And that that's like our, our weekend jam. We're definitely getting some beach naps in. Rain or overcast, beach naps are where it's at. You mentioned something a moment or two ago about shutting off your phones. How powerful yeah. is that? Shutting off your phones. Huge. So there's, and I helped re-identify this recently. My mentor in, at NFI, Christy, gave me a book called Be Where Your Feet Are, right? And it, there, there are a number of exercises that you go through. I highly recommend it for anyone who is just looking to be more connected with the people that mean most to them. Yeah. And it, it's really about just being present. And this okay. has been something that I've been striving for for quite some time. But um, having completed the book and gone through their exercises, it just re-identifies how important it is to get out of our handheld entertainment and be authentically present with those that you're that are surrounding. Right? Is, is that from Scott O'Neill? Is that is that the author Scott M. O'Neill? Yeah, yeah. I'll put that in the show notes. Thank you for sharing that. I've never heard of that book. I'm gonna is it worth reading. A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. And so, admittedly, my eyes are going. So uh, I actually, uh, I, I'm an audible guy now. So whenever I travel or I'm doing cardio, I yeah. throw my yeah. How great is Audible? Audible is the, the bomb. I mean, the it, bomb. It, it, it's very well narrated. So I highly recommend it. If you're not a reader, throw it on Audible. It's a quick, quick one. I love it. Oh, we'll do. Done. Perfect. How about with wrapping up here? If yeah. everyone listening could take one lesson away from everything we discussed, if you give one lesson to people listening, what would it be? I think the biggest thing is being uh, authentic in who we are, right? I think that's the biggest aspect that, uh, that I'm applying. I want to be authentic. I want to be present. I'm on this continuous improvement path. So I seek out constructive criticism because there are areas of my life where I may not know that I need to critique, that where I need to improve. And so my tight circle, I'm, I'm asking them for that feedback. And I pride myself of being a value, whether it be a value friend, coach, athlete, father, husband, right? Or in business. I just, my goal now, I've, I've achieved a lot of success throughout manifold levels. And my primary focus is I want to be a value. So, you know, if I'm not being a value to you and you're in my network, hit me up because I'm really... I would like to hear from you. I would like to hear from those who uh, who think that I can add value to their lives because that's, I think ultimately that's what it's about. It's about giving back. Yeah, you know, feedback is such a gift. And when you're open-minded like yourself to say, please give me feedback and you take it and act on it, I mean, the sky's the limit. I mean, the sky is absolutely the limit for what you could do in life. How about with everything you got going on? What's the most exciting project you're working on now? Travel. Yeah, or two. So our next trip, well, our next trip will be for the ADCC. The trip following that will be to Rio. 
One of, one of our good friends is getting married. And then uh, Kelly and I are in the midst of planning a, a European vacation. So it's, yeah. Is that, where, it's, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go in Europe? Uh, so we're, we were going to go to Italy for the Nogi European Championships. Not sure I'm ready to compete yet. So we might have to scale that back. But, um, you know, for us, it, it's about getting out and seeing the things that we haven't seen yet. So mm-hmm. we've seen portions of Italy. We'd like to see a couple of the other spots that we haven't visited yet, like Florence, the Vatican City, Naples. But what's most important to us, and that's part of that, the, the book that, that I just shared with you, what's most important to us is travel. Mm-hmm. There, there are plenty of continents we haven't seen. There are areas that are on our list that we just we want to experience. And so the next phase of our adventure, the next chapters in our book are going to be about ex- exploration. Oh, great. Chat. That's awesome. Uh, two last questions. First off, here's a fun one. If you could spend the day with anybody, a li- any historical figure, alive or dead, oh, wow. anyone, who would it be? Oh, wow. Oh, geez. Gosh. I'm, I mean, I, I'd want to hang out with Muhammad Ali. Yeah, I'd be cool. That would be so cool. <laughs> that would be so cool. Oh my gosh. Right, 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 right in his prime. Oh my gosh. That would be so cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Awesome choice. Hey, last question. Kodiak Fields. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? Ugh. Wow. Yeah. See, you should have prepped me with that one because if we're, if we're ink, I need, it needs to be a little more, a little more thought. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've got this going on. You got, you got some ink. You got some. I think I already did it. I think you did it. I think you did. I think you're in your head of the game. What, what, what's your, what's your phrase? What's your saying or phrase? What, 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 what comes to mind when you think of something like that? That quotes me. Oh, geez. I, you know, for, you know, I, I'm of one of it's, it's all about the result. Right. So, you know, I, I would say you know, all the BS talk that goes back and forth, I, I'm of the mindset of, you know, shut up and train. That's it. Right. So, so regardless of what, if you're applying it to, athletics or professionalism, right? It, it's all about just, just shut up and do it. Mm-hmm. Now, don't, tell, don't tell me about it. Show me yeah. more than anything else because <laughs> yeah, actions, actions speak louder than, than anything that you can say. So quit talking about it and just do it. Shut up and train. I think that is about as good as a spot as any to end. Kodiak Fields, I'd like to thank you for joining us. It's an honor to have you on the show. I wish you nothing but continued success in your rehab. Hope to see you back on the world stage, holding the medal on top of the the podium. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. People are looking for you online. Where can we find you? People are looking for you and what you do. So LinkedIn, it's Kodiak Fields. I'm the only one on there. Same with IG. I'm taking a concerted effort not to be so present in social media, but those are easy ways to find me if you want to connect. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Joe. It's my pleasure. Thank you, brother. Good to see you. Hey, it's Joe Chicarone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please leave us a five-star review. It goes a long way with connecting the podcast with more listeners. So if you could, I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Talk soon.